Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we're picking up where we left off. As you'll notice in, our, uh, in your bulletin, the, almost everything is the same except I added part 2. <laughs> so we're do, doing the second part of the same sermon that we began last week. If you weren't here, I do encourage you to, to go to our website and, and listen to that. It'll help you to uh, get a better grounding for what we'll be talking about today. However, I'm going to spend some time just summarizing, briefly summarizing what we covered last week, reminding you of that first point, and then we'll look at the bulk of our time with, at points two and three. But just to remind you as well, in the section we're in in Hebrews here, he started a warning passage back in 511. He's trying to grab their attention, right? He's, he's um, wanting those who have grown sluggish to be stirred up. And, and maybe at a, at, at, certainly at the beginning, we know that it seems they were growing, right? They, they responded well to the preaching of the word. And he's concerned now that they've grown a little bit indifferent or distracted by other things, that they're being tempted uh, to depart from Christ. And so he's, he's concerned that they have not matured beyond milk. They've, they've, they're not ready for solid food. Um, and so they were stuck at that kind of elementary level of the doctrine of Christ. And he wants, to, he wants to press them on, you know, to encourage them to pursue deeper understanding and knowledge. And so that's this section where we find this warning. And before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that every time we open it, we can once again hear from you, that you can speak to us. And Lord, you could have done that in a number of ways. You could have spoken to us in the, in the sky or through, through just some distant voice. But Lord, you've, you've chosen to reveal it to us through the scriptures, through your word that has been handed down to us. Um, as men have, have copied it and, and, and translated it. And Lord, we're grateful that we can open it and read it and hear you. Lord, but we also know and recognize that apart from your spirit, and these are just words. Lord, we need your spirit to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to give us ears to hear the truth, that we would respond appropriately to it. And Lord, even when we come to a passage like this that warns us and that maybe causes us to, to wince or to cringe, Lord, there is an appropriate response of repentance that, is, that you're leading us to. And Lord, we depend upon you to do that work. So give us the gift of repentance. Give us the comfort of your gospel. Remind us of your grace and, and the grace that you have shown us even in this warning passage. It's, it's a warning that is a means of preserving and protecting. Lord, in the same way that a parent might warn their child about running out into traffic. Lord, we need these warnings. It preserves us, and so we're thankful for it. Help us to be obedient in response. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, read with me Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, although we're really just focusing on 6 through 8. I want to read the whole section for us. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we have, uh, last week we, we opened with some three primary interpretations of the passage one was that these this description of these believers especially verses four through eight is is this uh, it's genuine christians who are on the verge of losing their salvation so genuine believers true converts to christ people who have placed their faith in christ alone for their salvation and then have fallen away from it in unbelief that's a very common understanding of this passage, that genuine Christians lose their salvation. I said last week that that is contrary to so many passages of Scripture, Philippians 1, 6 being one example, right? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The idea that God begins a work, uh, it, it, he's not going to go back on that. He's going to finish that work, right? Um, and so if God is doing a genuine work in a believer, then then we will persevere, right? So we would disagree with that interpretation. The second one is that this is just kind of a hypothetical description. Um, it's sort of a what if. What if we could lose our salvation? This would be tragic, right? It doesn't seem to be uh, that either because that doesn't seem to have the weight of a, a genuine warning, right? The warning passage is meant to stir us up as, and, and hypotheticals tend to, to not stir us up. They tend to just go, oh, well, that, good thing that's not true right? Uh, we just, we don't really take it to heart. So I don't think there's anything in the text that indicates this is hypothetical. The other, though, the third and, and final primary interpretation, there's others that I, I haven't gone into, um, but it's that these are apostates who belonged to the covenant community but departed from it. So they, they did not have a genuine conversion, 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us because they were not of us. Right? So it displayed the fact that they departed from the covenant community displays the fact that they were never truly of us. That's what, 1 John, that's, that's what he says in 1 John 2.19. So they never truly professed what they professed. Um, this would be the same thing that we have in the Old Covenant where, where children and, and even, even entire families may have grown up in the covenant community but departed from the faith. Um, and, and so they, it doesn't mean that they had a genuine encounter with God. That, that, I mean, they, 
they had an encounter with the, with the true God, but they did not have a conversion experience with him. It was not a true, genuine conversion. You can, in that sense, belong to the covenant community in a superficial or shallow way. And that's the danger. That's why the warning is so crucial for us today. You can grow up in the church. You can hear the gospel week after week. You can hear it read in family worship. You can pray to God over before a meal. You can experience all of these things that every other Christian in this church is going through and experiencing, and yet your heart is far from him throughout it all. And maybe you've experienced seasons like that, right? We have seasons where we doubt, where we struggle, where we fear that maybe we are one of those apostate. Well, that's why this warning is genuinely given. Because the goal is that we would repent. The goal is that we would return, right? And that's what repentance is, returning away from the world, turning away from the distractions, coming back to the Lord. So that's our understanding of this passage There's a genuine danger of falling away from the covenant community if our faith is only superficial. But those who experience true repentance will persevere in their pursuit of God's blessing. So last week we focused on verses 4 and 5, and and the first part of your outline is the pretension of apostasy, coming from the root word pretend. It's, it's um, not suggesting that the experiences they had were false or fake. They, they were experiencing uh, things that were within that covenant community that were, that were genuine experiences. They were real. But what we mean is that they left them with a false impression that they were truly saved. Um, and we, we said the one illustration that is that the author is probably thinking about and referring back to in verses 4 and 5 is the wilderness generation. So we looked at Nehemiah 9, and we understand how this generation was rescued, brought out from Egypt. They received tremendous blessings. None of them could deny that they received grace upon grace, and yet they died in the wilderness in unbelief, most of them. They were not truly uh, trusting in Christ alone. They were not trusting in the, the hope of the gospel promise that had been given all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Or they were not trusting in that clearly because they continued to rebel all the way to the end. Right? They complained and grumbled and rebelled and they did not repent. So someone can make a profession that appears credible and from all outward appearances they can look just like everyone else but they can fail to be genuine in reality. There is not that internal component. It's only an outward show. And they have said the right things. They might even understand how they need to speak and communicate, but all of it is just really a a facade because their heart is not with their mind and their their mouths, right? They're, They're not truly speaking what they believe. They're not resting. They're not receiving and resting in the promise of Christ. All right, so that's the pretension of apostasy. If you want to hear that elaborated more fully, you can go back and listen to that uh, from last week. But let's look at our second point, the realization of apostasy from verse 6. And let me reread it. And then have fallen away. Now, you got to go back because in the very beginning of verse 4, it says, for it is impossible 
And then he, he really has all of these commas, right, that are inserted uh, between finishing that phrase. So, for it is impossible to restore them again to repentance is what, is what the argument is. Right? It's impossible, verse 6, if they've experienced all of these experiences in verses 4 and 5, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a complicated verse. No doubt about it. Um, I read a lot of pages this week. Um, but here's what I think. It's suggesting that when someone falls away from the, from the peak experience of Christianity... And think of it like a mountaintop, right? Those in, in the Exodus, those in the wilderness had experienced incredible, they'd witnessed incredible miracles and incredible mercies from God to rescue them, to preserve them. The Pharaoh's army came, came after them and he parted the Red Sea in front of them. They walked upon dry land across it. They got to the other side, they worshiped God, they praised him, they celebrated. And then like the next day they're grumbling. I mean, it's, it's wild how, how quickly, how fickle they were in the wilderness. But if someone can fall away from that peak experience of Christianity, there's really nothing left to convince them of the truth of the gospel. What other thing can you, can you say or do? They've seen it all, and they've still rejected it. The point he's making here is if, if you've heard the gospel, you know it in and out, you can share it with someone else, and you still aren't resting in it, that's a very, very dangerous place to be because there's nothing else, right, to, to do. You're, it would be, it is impossible for someone to hear and know everything about the gospel, still reject it, for them to be restored to repentance. Now, here's the other thing that I would say is we don't know at what point someone reaches that stage. We call to repentance. If someone repents, then clearly they haven't made it to that point of no return. So from our perspective, when we go out and evangelize, when we share the gospel with someone who's in the church who says, man, I'm just doubting, I'm full of, we say repent and believe. And if they respond in obedience to that, then we know they haven't reached this point. But there is a point that someone gets to, and I think that danger, that threat is real. Uh, it's It's the unforgivable sin. Where is that and when does a person commit that? Only God knows. Truly. So John Calvin, that's exactly where he goes with this. He relates it to that unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he likens that to a total rejection of God and his gifts. Matthew 12, 31 through 32. He says it's, it's understanding the gospel as clearly as it can be shared with you and rejecting it. So he does not consider that to be a possibility for the elect. If someone is elect, they will never commit that sin. If someone is elect, they will never get to this point of apostasy. Well, that implies that you can be in the covenant community in an outward sense and not be elect. Right? And that's, that's how I'm understanding this. So ultimately, we must admit that only God knows where the line is drawn. But this passage suggests that a person can reach the point of no return. The ability to repent has an expiration date. 
And, and so, you know, some people put that off and they say, oh, I'm living my life. I don't want the guilt. I don't want to worry about having to repent now. I'm going to wait till the end. You keep rejecting the gospel message and there comes a point where you, you won't be able, you're, you're going to be so numb to the message that you won't respond to it when you think you would. So it is available for a limited time. And if we don't respond before that cutoff, we will lose that opportunity forever. This is why I think it is crucial that when we share the gospel, that we, we call someone to repent, we, we can acknowledge the fact that you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, I know some people use that in a manipulative way, and, you know, I get Mark up here and start playing some really, like, scary tunes for us so that we can get us in the right mood. I'm not trying to do that. But I am saying that you don't, you're, not, you're not promised an extension of time to repent. But you can repent now. You can respond in obedience right now. How would they crucify Jesus again? That's, that's one of the questions I had as I read this. Verse 6. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. How would they crucify Jesus again? How, in, how is this holding him up to contempt? An, an older interpretation of this passage led to some very significant doctrinal differences of, uh, regarding baptism, repentance, and forgiveness, and a host of other things. But what they would have said was that this restoring again is associated with the cleansing blood of Christ. That's applied at baptism. They would have said to restore again is this, is this receiving of baptism, and that can only happen once. So they're saying you can't be restored again Right? It's impossible to restore you again. It's impossible for you to receive the cleansing blood of Christ a second time. You get it once. Now, the logic is that, well, if, I, if, if my baptism applies the cleansing blood of Christ to me and, and it covers my sins that I've committed prior but not my sins that I commit after, well, then I better wait till I'm on my deathbed before I'm baptized so that all of my sins are covered so that I spend less time suffering in purgatory that's the logic that led that that's the logic that led to that interpretation and some of you have heard that you can read philip hughes says that that interpretation is found in the shepherd of hermas as well as clement of alexandria and it led to a practice of believers delaying baptism until they were about to die eventually a teaching arose that the blood of martyrdom could also purge any sin committed prior so what do you think happened then? People started seeking martyrdom. Right? So both of them, I think, are, are faulty, right, um, interpretations of this passage. All of this became a precursor for an elaborate system of penance in the church and the, and the, the doctrine of purgatory. It became so corrupt that it troubled Martin Luther to write his 95 theses, nail him to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517 sparked the Reformation, and we're thankful for that. And so God used even, their, even this corrupt understanding of his word uh, to restore the church, to bring us to repentance, if you will. Now, there are several problems with this interpretation, beginning with the fact that the author of Hebrews is not addressing sin in general. 
He's not talking about all kinds of sin. He's talking about apostasy. He's specifically talking about departing from Christ. And so to apply this in that general sense to all kinds of sin that would need a, a, a system of penance um, is, is not applicable to this passage. Philip Hughes says, of course, the very possibility, I think this is, this is really insightful, the very possibility of lapsing from all that one's baptism signifies discountenances any doctrine of automatic regeneration, ex opere apparato, through baptism, as though the external right itself guaranteed the internal reality. The very fact that you could lose that, the, the very possibility of lapsing from all that's represented in baptism proves that it's not an ex opere operato um, baptism, that you're not regenerated in your baptism. If that doesn't make sense to you, talk to me afterwards. I'll share further. But I think that is a, an important point. Indeed, the whole issue of this passage may, may be said to revolve around the question whether the internal reality to which the external right is designed to testify is truly present or not. I think Hughes has a good understanding of this passage. So the language of crucifying Jesus again is a graphic reference to rejecting the gospel. Those who do so take the position of Jesus' accusers, declaring his death to be that of a guilty criminal, not that of a substitutionary atonement. It just becomes another death, a death that is meaningless in light of our eternity. So we become like the Pharisees, condemning Jesus and calling for his crucifixion. You've heard the gospel clearly, you've understood it, and you've rejected it. You're just like the Pharisees. You're just like the, the, the Jews who handed him over. So how do we make sense, however, of this apostasy language? I think that, in, that understanding is, is true, that this is uh, crucifying. It's, it's in this, it puts us in the same boat as, as his actual, uh, his accusers and those who physically crucified him. Um, but it does seem to, or seems like it would apply to anyone who finally rejects the gospel, whether or not they ever had understood at one point. Right? Apostasy implies that you're in the covenant community and then you leave it, that you depart from it. Um, that's not, that wasn't the case for the Roman soldiers. And that wasn't a case, the case for his accusers. So anyone who rejects the gospel in that sense, could apply this passage or, or that particular phrase in that way. But I think the argument's easier to follow if we understand that, again, these were Jewish converts tempted to return to the sacrificial system and the ritualistic observances of temple worship. And so apostasy for them was regressing into a state of death, to a state of future fulfillment which had already in the past been done. You get that? So they're looking forward through a sacrificial system to a death that's already occurred, requiring that his death happen again. Now we can kind of make sense of it, I think. Apostasy is regressing in that sense. Restoration would require another sacrifice. And later on, he'll make this argument again in chapter 10. And he'll be talking about the, the inadequacies of the sacrificial system and what Christ has done has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified that Christ's sacrifice is once and for all and it's a replacement 
of that sacrificial system in the temple. The single offering of Jesus has ongoing benefits for our sanctification. So that seems to make the most sense to me of this warning. And and so how does it apply to us? Because maybe we're not tempted in that same way, right? Not tempted necessarily to go back to a sacrificial system. So do, do we say, well, this is one of those hypotheticals that just doesn't apply to me now. Right? The intention of this warning is to stir us up toward repentance. On the other hand, it's possible to take this warning too far in the other direction, suggesting that repentance was no longer available for anyone who repudiates their faith. And you actually have this in history. Roman persecution in the third century led to a dispute among the priests about reconciling anyone who had apostatized. There were examples of people suffering under the Roman persecution and, and giving in, right? Renounce Christ, they renounce him so that they can live. And then later on, after the persecution kind of dies down, they come back to the church. People, the priests were turning to this passage and saying, sorry, once apostatized, you can't come back. Right? You, you lost your chance. And they're called the novations. They relied upon this passage Uh, One among several, but this was the primary passage, to deny the restoration of believers who renounced their faith or practiced idolatry, like some Roman um, uh, emperors would require that you practice some some idolatrous thing to prove that that you're rejecting Christ. So some of them did that. And there was this debate about whether they should ever be received back into the church. Now, they understood that any believer who fell away could never be restored to the community of saints. If they repented, they were to remain in lifelong penance and left for God to judge outside of the church, right? Like I'm not, they, they would say, you, you might be repentant, but you're going to have to wait for, jo- for God to judge you. We can't, we don't have any, anything to do with you. So that view along with the inability to determine the authorship of Hebrews at that time, led to the Western church actually rejecting the authority of Hebrews for a time. And they, they, they had so much competing doctrine about it that they had a hard time discerning the authenticity of the text. Novation and his followers were swiftly excommunicated at the Roman Synod in 251 A.D., in part, it was also due to the fact that Novation had declared himself to be the true pope. And they called him the anti-pope. And so the Novations continued to operate under a succession of anti-popes as a schism of the church until the 17th century. And the question is, were they right? Did the Novations get this passage right? Was it impossible for apostasy to be reversed? Is it irreversible? If someone rejects the gospel leaves, should we allow them to repent? Well, unlike Paul, who admitted that he acted out of ignorance when he persecuted the church and insulted the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.13, these apostates in this passage were not ignorant. They were not acting out of ignorance. They were fully aware of what they were tempted to depart from. They already belong to the New Covenant community, but the author fears the possibility that their hearts may not be aligned with their professions. Now again, keep in mind verse 9. He speaks 
He's speaking of this as a possibility, but he is confident. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Though we speak in this way of our concerns about you, we are sure that you are saved, that you will persevere, that you will repent. So if their repentance and faith were genuine, then their, their temptation to depart from Christ will ultimately and effectively be defeated by the very one that they've believed in, by the Messiah, by Jesus. And as our confession says, they can neither totally nor finally fall away from that state of grace. So how does that apply to you today? Well, ensure that you do not get to that point of no return. How do you ensure that? Repent. Repent today. Don't put it off. Don't delay thinking you have more time. We should acknowledge that repentance is a gift from God. Any work that, it, that he genuinely begins will be completed, and so we can conclude that anyone who repents is clearly not guilty of apostasy. Their repentance proves that they were not utterly lost. And I think Richard Phillips asks a challenging question. He says, when you hear the gospel and understand what is taught, you incur an obligation to God to press on to saving faith. Hebrews shows that it is very dangerous to toy with such knowledge by delaying you run the risk of a terrible fate. Furthermore, if you're not willing to turn to Christ for salvation today, that makes you think it will be, or what makes you think it will be any different tomorrow. It'll be harder to embrace Christ later if you delay now. Therefore, as Paul wrote, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. So repentance unto life is a saving grace that you must receive as a gift from God. And so don't delay receiving that gift. To make himself clear, and we're, we're going to wrap it up with this, and it'll be a little bit quicker, but you'll have to bear with me a little bit. Our third point is an illustration of apostasy. So you have the pretension of apostasy the realization of apostasy is verse 6. And then an illustration of apostasy in verses 7 and 8. It says, For the land that was, has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, clearly, he's illustrating what he's just been talking about here. He's given an analogy, and it's a simple analogy. It's one his audience would have been familiar with from the Old Testament. So he utilizes this agricultural parable to illustrate one of two options, right? Rain falls on a field that either produces crop or it bears thorns and thistles. What's the difference? One field is cultivated. One, field is, one, one piece of land is, is well-prepared. Seed has been planted. So when the rain falls, it has this positive effect. The soil, it's the right kind of soil. The other one's not been prepared. The other one's not had uh, any work done, right? And, and so what does it do when the rain falls? It just produces more of the, the things you don't want in your field. Thorns and thistles. Weeds. 
the same rain as landing on an uncultivated field will only exaggerate the problem. Thorns and thistles will grow in strength and number, choking out any hope of the field becoming useful in the future. It's on the verge of being burned. So one field is blessed and the other is cursed. So the analogy clarifies the situation. Anyone who still has the impression that apostasy is possible for genuine converts will have a hard time understanding why the rain has a different impact upon each field. Wouldn't, we, wouldn't he say something like they both produce fruit and trees all the way up until the one left? But no, it says one was def- it just never had the opportunity. There was no seed there. Nothing internally was actually implanted in that field, in that person. And this is actually, uh, they would have been familiar with this language from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 speaks of the, this field. It represents God's people either receiving a blessing or a curse. And the rain represents God's word, also from Isaiah 55. So there are parallels of this parable throughout the Old Testament. And you also have one in the New Testament. Right? You have the idea that, the, that there's a sower sending, sowing seed and there's different kinds of soils to receive that seed. The good soil produces fruit. The other soils might have a sign of life for a time, might grow really quick, but it'll be choked out through persecution or tribulation. So it all sounds like the parable of the sower and the four soils. You can read that in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, all parallel passages. So in this case, only one field is blessed while the other is cursed. One field was cultivated by a genuine internal work of the Spirit, whereas the other field was barren. Now, what determines the difference? Both receive the rain, but one has the ability to respond. The other does not. One has been given the seed to actually produce something. The other doesn't. So last week I mentioned Judas Iscariot as this quintessential example of an apostate member of the covenant community. He experienced everything just like the other disciples, but in the end he fell away. And he didn't just depart quietly, right? He rebelled against his Lord, giving him a kiss, betraying him. And his betrayal of Jesus becomes this twist on the pattern of ministry in Jesus' life. Instead of the Pharisees finally getting to Jesus, he was betrayed by someone among his 12 closest companions. And that ought to strike us a lot like this warning does. That one who was among them could depart so radically from the truth. But there's another person we should look at as an example. On the other hand, Peter. What did he do? As Jesus was on trial, Peter vehemently denies that he ever knew him. And this was shortly after declaring his undying loyalty to his Lord. I will never depart from you. He confidently declares that he will be faithful to the end. And so we are utterly shocked when we read the gospel accounts where he denies him. And it gets worse, he even adds cursing to his denials. 
the next time they encounter one another is at the end of John. You have this picture. John 21. Jesus is enjoying the fresh fish that he himself has helped them to miraculously catch. It's breakfast. Fish for breakfast. Talk about that later, but Anyways, they enjoyed fresh fish for breakfast with the disciples. And in that moment, Jesus asks Peter. And you can think about it. What's going on in Peter's mind here? Last time I was looking into this man's eyes, I couldn't see through the tears of regret and remorse that I had denied him. And Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter's like, of course I do. What would have given you any other impression? Well, maybe the fact that you just denied me three times. So he asked it again, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. He asked him a third time, and the answer is the same. And every time he tells him, what? Feed my sheep. Tend my, my flock. Feed my lambs. Take care of them. Even after you've denied me, I want to use you. Now, the, the difference between Peter and Judas is repentance. True faith. A work, a genuine work of the Spirit. So we don't consider Peter to be an example of apostasy because unlike Judas, he was restored through genuine repentance. And we hold out that hope just as the author of Hebrews does for his audience. To everyone we declare this message to. But the warning is still there. So this is all symbolic of the spiritual situation in which some people find themselves within the covenant community where they've prepared, they, maybe they haven't prepared their mind and heart to truly engage in worship. They come before the Lord with spiritual lives that have grown cold and dry. Maybe they've never experienced the warmth of a genuine interaction with God, even though they've come to church. They hang around the fringes but never fully become involved. Whatever their fear or hesitation for all intents and purposes, even though they're within this covenant community, they remain little more than outside observers. And if that describes you, ask the Lord to prepare the soil of your heart so that you might drink the rain. That you might produce a spiritual fruit. That's a reflection of a genuine conversion that would result in blessing from God. So when you open the word of God, open yourself up to the work of the word made flesh. The same Lord who merited our salvation in his perfect life and substitutionary death now intercedes on our behalf, seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's that intercessory work that causes us to persevere, that draws us to repentance. And so when we are tempted toward apostasy by Satan, the world, or even your remaining corruption in your flesh, realize that we become like what we worship. Psalm 115. 
And the only response to our idolatrous apostasy is to turn away from it and to put our trust in the Lord so that he becomes our help and our shield. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the, the warning. We thank you for the rebuke. We thank you for the correction. We thank you for stirring us up when we become indifferent. And Lord, your word can have that work in us every time we open it. We trust that it's had that work even now in our hearts so that we would stand and respond with a greater affection for you, a greater sense of our our faith and our dependence upon you, even brought to repentance, repentance unto life. That is a, a gift, a gracious gift. So Lord, we thank you for this word, and we do pray that you would send us out to share this message with those who need to hear it and those who who are indifferent about, who've grown indifferent over time. Maybe they've been in the church and they've heard the gospel shared so many times that they've just grown numb to it. Lord, we know there's a danger in them going too far. So we pray that you would give us an opportunity, the privilege of being a part of restoring them as we know that your spirit must do that work in them. And do that work in our hearts, Lord, even now. In Christ's name we ask it, and for your glory, amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response. Like a river glorious, we'll sing hymn 485.